From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A new year, a new chance to think about our relationship to social media. I would say spend the time on the platforms that make you feel good and surround yourself with like really generative relationships and conversations versus spending your time on places that make you upset or angry. We'll discuss the changes at Twitter, emerging alternatives, and your eyeball time, as our guest today puts it. One thing that I always want to remind people is that when you use a social media platform, like in many ways, you are the product, you are not the user. Like uh, for many of these for-profit social media platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, like YouTube, they're selling ads on top of or next to the kinds of content that you're producing. Later, training cops to spot drugged drivers. Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When Elon Musk, the world's second richest man and CEO of Tesla, bought Twitter for $44 billion, Some soul-searching began. Current Twitter users wondering if the platform's still for them. Others newly attracted to the microblogging site. A digital migration is underway, and Brian Keegan is watching this unfold. He's assistant professor of information science at CU Boulder, studies how people use and move among social platforms. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me. Speaking of moving, you've done some of that yourself, abandoning Twitter, right? Right. I uh, left Twitter in April or May 2022 once Elon announced his acquisition, and I've been on uh, Mastodon full-time since then, so it's really been remarkable to see how much it's grown since he completed his acquisition in October. That is to say how much Mastodon has grown. Exactly, how much Mastodon has grown enormously. We'll talk about Mastodon, which is one of the micro-blogging alternatives to Twitter, but why, as a researcher, would you leave the thing that you're you know, interested in observing? Absolutely. I have done lots of research looking at how Twitter is used during the World Cup, how Twitter is used to spread misinformation and things like that. So it's been extremely good for me in my research career to date. But for me, I have always been fascinated by this idea of like the commons, the things that don't belong to anybody but belong to everybody. And so thinking about these alternatives like Mastodon gets us a lot closer to commons and information spaces. That is a platform that not one person runs. There's no CEO of. And that's true for Mastodon. Exactly. All right. So Mastodon is one of these decentralized, they also call it a federated social network. And so that means that there's no one central server. There's no one central owner. And that opens up a lot of really exciting possibilities for what we can do with social media in in ways that uh, have been possible with centralized social media that we've really grown accustomed to in the last 10 or 15 years. What else uh, differentiates Mastodon from Twitter? So in addition to not having a single server or one central CEO, when you join Mastodon, you're able to join a different server and those servers or those instances have different kinds of rules. And so you're really able to innovate around what kinds of rules you want to participate in and what kinds of leadership or governance you want to have over you versus just subscribing to Twitter or Facebook. Oh, I understand now why they might call it federated, because essentially what you have are little states, little fiefdoms where rules are different. And you have... Uh, the marketplace then to choose from of servers. Exactly right. So each of these different instances or servers have different sets of rules. And so you can end up finding a, a group that has those kinds of rules that really are compatible with your values. You know, if you want stronger rules over the kinds of content that you see, you can find places that have stronger moderation. If you subscribe to much more of a free speech kind of philosophy, you can find places that have much weaker kinds of content moderation rules. And so that really creates a kind of powerful spectrum of places and how you can sort of self-affiliate. Well, I also think of Post as having emerged. That's another alternative to Twitter. What else have you seen? What else are you curious about? Right. So we're seeing the emergence of, like you'd mentioned, Post as an alternative. I'm a little bit skeptical of Post. I think it ends up falling into a lot of the similar kinds of traps of being a very centralized, venture capital-funded kind of model that mm. Twitter and Facebook and other kinds of platforms were as well. And I think that will end up being susceptible to similar kinds of pressures and failures that we've seen with Facebook and Twitter and things like that. 
But that said, I think this deterioration in Twitter, this transition or migration that we're seeing with Twitter in the last couple of weeks and months has really opened up the, a lot of exciting alternatives to us thinking about how we want our social media to look like, how we want it to be operated and governed. And it's creating a really kind of uh, exciting space to experiment with different modes of technological protocols, but also social governance mechanisms. Is Mastodon a Twitter ripoff? Uh, it is not identical to Twitter. It certainly has many of the same kinds of microblogging features like retweets and replies and a timeline and things like that. They call them toots and boosts. Toots and boosts, exactly, right? So it has this kind of very distinct lingo and language you gotta get used to. Uh, like you'd mentioned the toots, the boosts, the instances, the federation and things like that. But none of that is to say that there are these gigantic technological barriers to really you getting on board. I think there are some usability challenges that some of the largest servers on Mastodon have waiting lists, and that can be really frustrating. But Mastodon works in many ways like email does, that if you have Hotmail or Gmail, you can still talk to like someone on your Gmail account to a Hotmail email address. Hmm. So just joining a one Mastodon instance doesn't mean that you can't talk to other Mastodon instances. And that's what makes it federated and decentralized. Instances meaning servers in this case. Since Elon Musk bought Twitter, we are learning more about algorithms and how tweets were amplified or de-amplified, the latter known as shadow banning. So you're not banning someone, but you're saying your tweets are irrelevant and we're not going to show people them. Can you speak to how algorithms on various platforms affect our experiences on social media and the, the flow of information? Right. So you mentioned shadow banning. So this was a content moderation tactic that many social media platforms use. So rather than just banning a user outright from posting at all, what a shadow ban does is basically turns their volume down to zero so yeah. they can post, but no one can see what they're posting. Only they see what they're posting. Only they see what they're posting. And there's a kind of a logic to that, that you don't want to necessarily drive these users away, but at the same time, you maybe don't want their content, whether it be about insurrections or anti-vaccine information, getting out there and getting a large audience. And so there's a logic to why you might want to do that. And that's ultimately a content moderation kind of decision. And the conversations that we're having around Mastodon and around centralized versus decentralized social media right now are really centered on how much do we want to give power to like a single user or a single owner to make those kinds of decisions? Or mm. do we want that to be a whole ecosystem of different kinds of experiments running and, and letting people just pick and choose where they want to post their content and have that content be amplified or not amplified? And that gets back to the notion of Mastodon, which is that those decisions are being made uh, on these little islands but you can hop from one island to another if you'd like. Right. So uh -huh. we've got these different islands, but you can imagine these islands are all still connected by radio or something like that. And they can just <laughs> still all communicate with each other. As platforms emerge uh, to compete with Twitter, do you think there will be a place where red and blue America might interact meaningfully? Because I could also see Mastodon just becoming a complete in-bubbling <laughs> platform, you know? So you can definitely imagine that the way that Mastodon works with its content moderation, there's a lot of different design levers you can pull that allow people who govern different instances, different servers on Mastodon can end up contributing to a filter bubble that might end up encouraging more polarization than we saw on Twitter. In many yeah. ways, that we, what we had with Twitter or Facebook is that we were all under one roof and we all had to kind of play by similar sets of rules. And that was the place where we had the town square where we could all gather. And so one of the risks, and I think is a very real risk when we move to these kinds of decentralized kinds of platforms and protocols, is that that might end up accelerating the kinds of polarization and the kinds of echo chambers that we see as people cut ties to other kinds of instances. And that's a really powerful way that content moderation works on a decentralized platform like Mastodon is that you can cut ties with other servers so that no one on your server can see another server's content. Mm. Do you have any FOMO with Twitter? Like, is there a part of you that misses it a bit? I definitely do have FOMO. My wife is still on it, and so I will definitely like look at her screen as she like browses through it. I might find myself getting on there once in a while and checking my DMs or seeing if what's just going. Oh, you've kept your login and I've password. I've kept my login. I'm just I'm just don't have the app on my phone and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely do have FOMO. I think that I'd spent. 14 years on the platform. I built some really strong relationships there. I think many people have, and I think there's definitely a feeling of loss uh, associated with trying to move over to a new kind of platform and, and create new kinds of relationships and try to find those sources of support that you had in the past. 
but there's also opportunities with that to kind of create new kinds of possibilities as well. And we are talking about the changes at Twitter and emerging alternatives with Brian Keegan, computational social scientist at CU Boulder. When we come back, what might a social media New Year's resolution look like? And the Kardashian Index. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. If you want to name a mountain in Colorado, where do you start? What is the state's most iconic food? Why does Pena Boulevard have a bike lane? And does anyone use it? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Corey Jones from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders and help us all discover more about our state of wonders. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A new year, a new opportunity to think about our relationship with social media, especially in light of all the changes at Twitter. Let's get back to my conversation with Assistant Professor of Information Science at CU Boulder, Brian Keegan. As we mentioned before the break, he has migrated away from Twitter in favor of another microblogging site called Mastodon. I recall a night in November when a sort of panic set in that Twitter might be imploding. People frantically pointed to their other social channels like Find Me Here. Do you recall that? And if you do, do you find that to be a revealing event? I mean, is there a little bit of brow mopping here? Hand wringing? So there was certainly a mania that set in that everyone needs to, li- or at least in my circles, that everyone needs to live, leave Twitter as soon as possible and find a new safe lifeboat to ride things out with this expectation that Twitter would fall apart almost instantaneously. I think it's a great credit to the engineers and managers who built Twitter that it's persisted as a technological platform you know, this many months after having more than half of the staff cut and having all these really profound policy and other kinds of changes implemented that as a platform, it's still running. Most of the time, you can still go there and post. But I suspect, like many kinds of infrastructure, it will start to deteriorate. And those kinds of those debts, those things that aren't being addressed, that technical debt will continue to accumulate and will maybe accelerate into more failures or, or more complex failures going forward. Do you want to be more precise with us about why you left Twitter? I mean, we know that in recent weeks and months, uh, there has been an increase, for instance, in hate speech, in anti-Semitism, in homophobia. Uh, do you want to speak to that? And whether, does I don't know, did that play into your decision? I mean, one thing that I always want to remind people is that when you use a social media platform, like in many ways, you are the product, you are not the user. Like uh, for many of these for-profit social media platforms like Twitter, like Facebook, like YouTube, they're selling ads on top of or next to the kinds of content that you're producing. And Mm -hmm. so it's how you're producing content for free that you're trying to share with others that these companies then monetize on top of your volunteered contributions. So your successful tweet, your successful Instagram post is the commodity. Exactly. And so when you're producing really good content for free that you're volunteering up and and sharing on these platforms, maybe out of a pro-social that you just want to get this out there, maybe because of a professional, you need to build a network. All of these are extremely valid reasons. But at the end of the day, you're doing that for free and someone else is making money on top of that. You don't like that. And I didn't like that at the end of the day. I didn't want Elon Musk, in this case, being the beneficiary of my ideas and free content. Tell us about the Kardashian Index, will you? Sure. So Kim Kardashian is an influencer before this was a, a mainstream term. And the idea here is that Kim Kardashian or any of her sisters are famous for nothing, is the intuition here. And so academics have adapted this idea to develop what's called the Kardashian Index, which is the idea that uh, you're famous uh, for nothing in the context of academia. And so what people have looked at is like, as scientists and researchers, how many Twitter followers do you have relative to the number of citations that your papers receive? (laughs) So, okay. So and is that disproportionate? Down. Yeah. Right, exactly. And so like do you have more Twitter followers than you deserve? Where the deserve idea here is like this somehow proportional to the number of citations that your scholarship has received. This idea that this is the impact that your research has had on the broader academic community and so in some way the number of Twitter followers you have should also be proportional to your number of citations. Is that elitist? 
It's absolutely elitist. It's definitely this idea that the way that we communicate in the public should somehow be proportional with the ways that we communicate or have ideas in the scholarly community. And some people are extremely persuasive communicators. Other people are maybe extremely effective researchers. And maybe those are different kinds of skill sets. And maybe they shouldn't be proportional. But um, hmm. the idea, again, being that like maybe a Nobel Prize winner should have more Twitter followers than just some young gun assistant professor. Twitter, along with Google and Facebook, uh, were asked to testify before Congress in 2021 about the handling of misinformation. What have you seen in terms of misinformation? And maybe you can speak in general to how the content of Twitter has changed since Elon Musk took over. So when Elon Musk took over in uh, October 2022, one of the first changes he made and some of the earliest changes he made were really bringing on a lot of accounts that had been banned in the past. This again, going to his philosophy, arguably of free speech, that like more speech is good speech. And so these accounts that have been wrongfully banned, we should bring them back and like give them their platform and their audiences again to have this kind of robust debate in a way that was, he I think would argue was prematurely shut down by content moderators at Twitter. I don't agree with that argument. I think there are important boundaries to the kinds of speech that are responsible, that are safe, that promote healthy discussion. And at the end of the day, a lot of these platforms are private companies and, and they sell ads and those advertisers want their ads to be appear alongside safe content. So there's really this idea of like ad safety has come to the fore that you don't want your advertisement for a car appearing next to like a post advocating for genocide, right? And you, those two things really shouldn't go together. And so you've really seen this fleeing of advertisers from Twitter as like these concerns about content moderation and sort of the introduction of like this unsafe content coming back. I mean, hearing that, it makes me think the market is doing its job. You could argue that certainly that like these advertisers want to make sure that their ads for drugs for cars for apps are all you know appearing alongside on a timeline that has like interesting content not dangerous or upsetting content that's going to drive other kinds of users away they're paying for eyeballs and if there's upsetting content that drives eyeballs away they're also going to leave you hold up i think wikipedia as resilient to these kinds of uh, misinformation attacks what does wikipedia show us Sure. So again, Wikipedia, this online encyclopedia, I think we all know and love, operates under a very different kind of business model than a lot of these other kinds of social platforms. Uh, so Wikipedia is a nonprofit. Unlike these for-profit corporations, it doesn't have the same kinds of incentives to deliver value back to shareholders. Uh, and it's ultimately not valuing things like virality or outrage that ends up maybe aggravating a lot of the worst parts of our uh, speech online. It also strikes me that Wikipedia, which, by the way, has things that resemble public radio pledge drives. You know, I've been asked to give a dollar here and there. It strikes me as a platform that is kind of balanced between centralized and federalized. That's a really good point. Right? So it's centralized in a lot of the classic ways that it came out of the same primordial soup in the early 2000s as the Facebooks and Twitters and MySpaces. And so as a protocol, as a technological stack, it has a very kind of centralized architecture. And yet it went down a very different kind of path, yeah. arguably because it has a very different kind of business model that doesn't require uh, lots of eyeballs, lo lots of monthly active users to attract advertisers, to develop algorithms that promote virality and things like that. And so I think in all those kinds of ways, Wikipedia's uh, different business models, the thing that ultimately contributes to its resilience to these kinds of disinformation attacks, that if you are you know, Russia or if you're some other kind of state actor uh, who's trying to engage in information operations, you want to sort of introduce really aggravating, polarizing kinds of content because the algorithms on a Twitter or a Facebook or YouTube see that kind of engagement and say, well, we should keep serving this up because it keeps people on the site. Mm. Uh, versus a Wikipedia is able to make decisions like if you're behaving badly, we're going to ban you and we're not going to be worried about like losing lots of people because we're not at the end of the day a for-profit corporation that needs to keep its monthly active user numbers up to show growth to shareholders to get them to continue to invest. Well, we're in a new year, a time to reflect on our habits, good and bad, social media perhaps among them. How can folks think about social media resolutions? Maybe, you know, as Twitter continues to change. 
So I've thought a lot about this. I'm certainly guilty of spending too much time scrolling on my phone through a lot of these kinds of social apps. Even as I've moved over to Mastodon, I've downloaded that app. It's on my phone. I spend a lot of time scrolling on that as well. I find that um, videos, like short videos, TikTok videos, Facebook, Instagram videos, oh, they're a time suck. Lord have mercy. Certainly. And so as I think about New Year resolutions for how we use social media, I would say spend the time on the platforms that make you feel good and surround yourself with like really generative relationships and conversations versus spending your time on places that make you upset or angry. Uh, there's certainly a lot to be angry about. Certainly a lot of these social media platforms have played really important roles in like organizing social movements to like work towards greater justice and social change in, in all these different kinds of ways. They become platforms for politics. And so I think that all of that's still possible on a Mastodon and these other kinds of alternative social media. But again, your eyeballs are the product. And so make sure that you're spending your eyeball time on platforms where who's benefiting from that. Uh, make sure you're sort of using your eyeball time to benefit the platforms and invest that time and your attention in the platforms that make you feel good and sort of reward good behavior in society at large. Your eyeballs are the product. Be a great book title. <laughs> Maybe someday, right? Maybe someday. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Ryan. Brian Keegan, computational social scientist at CU Boulder, on a new year and a new opportunity to reassess your use of social media. By the way, you can find me on both Twitter and Mastodon, so at CPR Warner on Twitter. On Mastodon, I'm ryebred at toot.community. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with the challenges of detecting drugged driving. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. An heiress and a diplomat's wife, Mildred Genevieve Montague Kimball regularly rubbed shoulders with heads of states and royalty. Better known as Tweet Kimball, she switched from ball gowns to jeans and boots with ease to pursue an interest in livestock. She lived both lifestyles in Sedalia in the 50s. First, she set up home in a Scottish-style castle, then bought adjoining properties to form the sprawl she named Cherokee Ranch. Tweet happily got her hands in the muck and raised Santa Gertrudis beef cattle. Most ranchers said Colorado winters would kill them, but her animals won one blue ribbon after another. She became the first woman to serve on the National Western Stock Show's board, and she gathered one of the most eclectic art and book collections in the country. Tweet Kimball's land is now protected as a wildlife sanctuary. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. With the support of Coble and Company. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The scenario plays out every day. An officer pulls someone over who's driving erratically. That's on this year. You can put your left foot on the line, take your right foot, put a heel toe for your left, just like this, put your arms on your side. Yes, sir. Go ahead and get in that position for me. Okay. Could you get your uh, left foot all the way on the white line? I'm sorry, sir. There you go. Okay. All right, I tell you two, you're going to take nine heel toe steps on the straight line. Okay. You're going to watch your toes and count each step out loud. When you reach nine steps. Now, while the officer suspects the driver is under the influence, the question is under the influence of what? Alcohol is relatively easy to determine, but what if it's marijuana, cocaine, methamphetamine, or might there be an underlying medical condition? This week and next, the Colorado Department of Transportation is training officers from across the state to differentiate among the different types of impairments. At the end of the course, they become certified drug recognition experts. Kurt Barnes is one of the trainers. He's a motorcycle officer with the Denver Police Department. Hi, Officer Barnes. Good morning. Also with us, one of the trainees, Alexandra Gunst, is a trooper with the Colorado State Patrol based in Larimer County. Hi, trooper. Good morning. So, Officer Barnes, I understand only about 1% of law enforcement in Colorado is trained in this drug recognition technique, DREs, drug recognition experts, they're called. So that's fewer than 150 in the state. That seems pretty low, especially considering that recreational marijuana has been legal here for a decade. So how come the number isn't much, much higher, officer? Well, and that's the reason that we're doing this training class, because we are 
actively trying to find officers. This, uh, the officers have to go through a interview process. They have to apply for this. Uh, it's not just a very uh, easy process to get into, mm. uh, but once they get into it, they have a lot of requirements that they have to fulfill. And we are trying to uh, boost up our numbers so that we can remove these impaired drivers from our Colorado roadways. Yeah, I understand this is a real commitment. It's like a semester college course squeezed into just a few weeks. Then there is travel to Arizona where uh, there is some like uh, training testing on inmates who volunteer for this. Then you take a test. You've got to be perfect on that test score 100 percent or you have to train again um does the law look different um when it comes to driving drunk versus driving drugged like are there different penalties there no absolutely not it's still a dui driving under the influence uh the difference between the two uh alcohol has a certain level of impairment and then the drug level also has a different level Uh, but both are considered a dui in the state of colorado but we don't have the same ways of measuring drugged driving as drunk driving correct that is correct it does show the level of impairment uh, and that's the whole purpose of uh, this training class is that uh, the officers then go through their steps, they look at all of the different things, and then they go through and make sure that the person is impaired, that they do show signs of impairment. Uh, We look at behavior, you know, how are they able to, you know, handle the situation? How How was their driving? Did they show signs that they were driving poorly? Was it excessive speed? Uh, was it also uh, maybe they were driving, uh, failing to drive within a single lane? Uh, we also look at the standardized field sobriety testing and how did they perform on all of those tests? Did they, were they able to complete the test successfully? Those are like the walking tests that we heard at the beginning then, right? Well, it's, there's actually three that we use uh, as the standard ones. Uh, that's the horizontal gaze nystagmus, the walk and turn, and the one leg stand. Uh, as we go on to the DRE program, we throw in additional tests that mm. the officers are trained on. Give me an example of one of those. The rod, uh, modified, Romberg Modified Balance. Uh, It's a test where the person stands with their feet heel to heel, toe to toe. Uh, They then close their eyes, estimating 30 seconds. It's a time test. And we also see how their body is uh, able to balance. Uh, Are they able to, you know, to maintain a balance as they're going? Uh, But it's also a time test. Why do we do time? Because I want to see how their internal clock is. Do they have that availability to estimate 30 seconds. If the person is on a stimulant, they're gonna be acting a lot faster. And if they're on a depressant, it's gonna be taking a lot longer. Uh, and then we also ask them, how did you count? You know, did you look at the, uh, you know, did you just kind of count randomly? Did you count by, you know, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi? Uh, you know, it's just all over the place. And we look at that, uh, for standardization. We try to make sure that all of these tests are standardized and that they're all performed uh, equally by each and every person who performs these tests. Because no doubt there's some subjectivity here, so you want to bring some uniformity to how it's administered. Okay, uh, Trooper Gunst, I had a little aha moment with the idea that you would test for someone's sense of time. What, What aha moments or epiphanies have you had as you've done this training? For the for the training, I'm a little confused from your question. Are you asking what what have been your wow and aha moments of you as you've done this training? As I've done this training, it's the biggest is adding these new uh, these new tests to our my, our everyday program that I've been doing for I've been a trooper for almost five years now, and adding these to see okay. Are they impaired by alcohol or is something else on board? Are they impaired by, let's say, methamphetamine or um, fentanyl 
or are they on inhalants? Are they, are they, um, uh, is it a, also, is it a medical issue? Cause that could also be why they're, why they're acting the way they are. Mm-hmm. Do they take insulin and have they not taken their insulin? Are they experiencing a mental crisis? And these are all things that we look for. We don't just look for trying to always get the DUI or the person driving under the influence. I also want to save lives. Is this person experiencing, let's say, anxiety? Or are they? do they need immediate medical attention? Hmm. That's also what we're looking for. I, it's not just to, you know, get the DUI and take someone to jail. It's does this person need immediate help? And that's why we also do these to rule out a medical or rule in a medical issue. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting. You you have to go to a scene and you have to get rid of your presumptions about it and observe. But help me understand, Officer Barnes, why it would be important uh, when it is the case of someone who is under the influence of something. Why would it be important for an officer to differentiate whether they're under the influence of cocaine or marijuana. How is that helpful? Is that about building a legal case or about the penalties they would face? Help me understand that. You know, I don't necessarily look at the penalties. I'm more looking at building a strong case. I'm looking at what can I do to prove that this person is impaired, that they are not safe to operate a vehicle on Colorado roadways. That's the most important thing. Uh, Whether the substance be cocaine, uh, THC, cannabis, uh, it's the level of impairment. Uh, and how they are impaired. The whole process is a 12-step documentation of what we observe and all of the clinical uh, modalities of the situation. Mm. 12 steps. All right. Some poetry there, perhaps. (laughs) Uh, Okay. So I wonder, Trooper, how often... Uh, you said that you've been with the patrol, I think, five years. Uh, how often do you pull someone over who seems to be driving erratically? Like, how often do you plan to use this kind of training? Well, so for right now, my my training that I have for the standard field sobriety testing, I yeah. use that in my everyday driving. If someone's driving, let's say, erratically or the wrong way. Uh, which I have had. I've had a wrong way driver more than once, unfortunately. Um, and so the reason I I do that before is I applied those before. Now I'm just enhancing my, I guess, program to, to my skill set to get these impaired drivers off the roadway. And even before this training, we do have training to detect if someone is under the influence of something other than alcohol. Mm-hmm. And this is just now honing in my skills to be uh, a drug recognition expert. Yeah, and presumably something then you might use every day, as you say there. Uh, mm-hmm. Officer, I'm, I'm curious about uh, whether the person who is taking the test, the driver, the motorist, uh, has to agree to all of these tests? Yeah, so the, the tests are voluntary. And so the way I explain it, I, I'm i very open with the person I pulled over. I, I'll tell them, hey, you know, my name is Trooper Guns with the Colorado State Patrol. This is why I pulled you over. And then, but before I asked them out of the vehicle, I looked to see um, their behavior and how I could help them or if there's something else on board, such as drugs or alcohol, and that's where you go a little further. Okay, so you ask the question, should I ask this person out of their vehicle? And then you make that determination because I've had people that are weaving and they are not impaired. They're just either on their phone or they're distracted by something else or they're drowsy. Those are things you have to look for. And those are the things I do look for like, hey, why are you unable to maintain your lane? And you go down those questions of are, have they not eaten and they're just tired? 
or is there something else on board? So then the next step is asking them out of the vehicle if I do suspect something else. And asking someone out of the vehicle, you could ask them out of the vehicle just as quickly as you could put them back in the vehicle. And I always explain explain that to the person and everyone I've had luck that everyone I do talk to is understanding of why they're like, yeah, I was weaving. I understand why you're asking me out. And then, um, yeah, and, and just, okay. just quickly, Officer Barnes, I'm curious, though, th does there has to be permission, does there have to be permission when the test is administered? Do drivers have to say, yes, you can do this? They are. Oh, oh yeah, th this is 100 percent consensual on their part. OK. Uh, and uh, one of the things that I can tell you is uh, it's in their best uh, defense and it's also in their best, you know, uh, to cooperate because I'm a fact finder. I am not looking for anything to, uh, incriminate them. All I'm trying to do is, Hey, if you're having a hard time, uh, if you're in a situation where I don't feel that you're safe to drive, talk to me, you know, tell me what's going on. You know, it might be one of those situations, Hey, I've been up for, you know, the last two or three days, I can't sleep. Uh, you know, and anything like that. But this is a situation where I am trying to help them and I'm also trying to make them safe. Uh, we talk about making our Colorado roads safe, but we also want to talk about making sure that every operator of a vehicle is safe, that they're the ones who make sure that they don't consume too much, whether that be prescription drugs or even, you know, recreational drugs. Uh, anything along those lines. This is about making our roadways uh, a safe place for everybody. I want to note that the legislature has instructed the Colorado Department of Transportation uh, this year to look into the idea of a roadside device for cannabis, uh, something akin to what we have for alcohol. Uh, and I, I wonder, uh, Trooper Gunst, if that's a tool that you'd like, something that could specifically measure, for instance, cannabis in someone's system. Uh, yes, this is this is exciting and we are looking forward to it. If it, it would be helpful for us if that was a tool that we we do have. Mm -hmm. Is there some part of this training, uh, Officer Barnes, that broaches the notion of profiling because we, we should talk about uh, using these tools this training in an equitable way uh, and not in one that targets some people uh, and not others is that part of the conversation absolutely not there's absolutely no uh type of profiling in fact i would say it's the complete opposite we are looking for uh, drivers who are impaired by alcohol and or drugs. This is not uh, any type of profiling that we're looking at. This is more, uh, we see the person weaving. We see the person speeding. We see the person driving on the shoulder of the road at 15, 20 miles an hour. Uh, this is not something that we're looking for a specific uh, group or anything along those lines. This is, we're out there uh, trying to save lives. So it, it sounds to me, uh, just to clarify your answer there, that you are making this behavior-based uh, and, as you say, not profiling. But is is that part of the discussion in the training? Oh, absolutely. Okay. We, we look for all kinds of different things. I mean, you, you look for, you know, is it a high speed, a person traveling at a high speed? That's we Speed is the uh, leading cause of death and injury in our nation anyway. Uh, but now we talk about, hey, maybe the person stopped in the middle of the intersection. Their perception of where to stop was slow, disoriented. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, is the person failing to drive in a single lane? We've all seen it with people uh, with our, you know, I noticed that you were doing the social media prior. Uh, social media and distracted driving is a huge emphasis and problem in our country mm -hmm. now. Uh, so we look at that, you know, is the person texting while they're driving, you know, uh, social media, uh, I've pulled people over and you walk up to the car and they're on, uh, you know, Snapchat, they're on, you know, uh, video conversations with their friends. No, this is they're, not, not, 
This is not They're just not a paying attention of, to their driving. Not just a question of drugs. Lots of ways to be distracted. And I guess just in, in a few short seconds, uh, Trooper Gunst, the idea is that you could be called to a scene when another trooper needs the expertise that you'll have. Is that right? Yes, just that is quick. correct. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe a skill set that they don't have or that they don't feel comfortable with. Then, then yes, those are. this is why we're doing uh, the training that we are. Alexandra Gunst is a state trooper in Larimer County, Kurt Barnes, motorcycle officer with the Denver Police Department. We discussed drug recognition training, which the state is trying to do with more officers. There are license plates in Colorado to support shelter pets and nurses and sports teams. One thing plates don't show, however, is the county where you live. But CPR's Megan Verlee reports it wasn't always that way. When Mark Hauer lived in Winter Park in the 1970s, you could tell what county a car was registered in just by looking at the letters on its license plate. All of our license plates had the two-letter codes on them. And it was always kind of a pride thing to see where people were from. All it took was knowing which letters stood for which counties. If you saw an AA, it came from Denver. HY, from Weld, and up where Howard lived. The first town I moved to that I owned a car in uh, was Winter Park. It would have been the Grand County, uh, being ZB on our plates. Howard's time in the mountains eventually came to an end. He moved to the Midwest, had a career, eventually retired back to Colorado. But by the time he returned, something was missing. Those two-letter codes. I just wondered why they weren't. And I saw your emails I get, and it said if you had questions, send them in. He's talking about our project Colorado Wonders. And to answer Howard's question, his wonder, I turned to the man who literally wrote the book on Colorado license plates. My name is Tom Boyd. Uh, I am the author of several license plate books, the most recent one being Colorado license plate in the first hundred years. Boyd's plate collection covers the walls of his garage in Boulder. It hangs overhead like this jingling rectangular swath of greenery and fills big wooden frames he flips through like a massive book as he tells the story of Colorado license plates. In 1932, the county were assigned a code based on the 1930 census. So Denver, being the most populous county in 1930, had plates that started with the number one. Pueblo got number two, and so on down. But why use county codes at all? Well, an old newspaper article in Boyd's book says it's because drivers really wanted plates with low numbers on them. And adopting a county prefix meant each county could start from one. Just human nature, people wanted to have low numbers. If you graduate in the top 10 in your class, that's a lot better than graduating 197. But then Colorado just kept adding people. They had to switch from using numbers to two-letter codes to be able to make enough license plates. And even then, bigger counties kept running through their allotted combinations. It was a struggle for license plates to keep up. Chris Hockmuth currently oversees plate inventory for the state. In Mesa County, that's the one I know because that's where I grew up. It, you know, started out as just NH, NJ, and NK, and then suddenly out of nowhere, I, you start seeing an L, and then NM, and then NP, and we just ran out of letters to be able to keep adding onto it without encroaching into other county blocks of letters. So in 2000, state lawmakers threw out the old county code system and ushered in the now standard three-letter, three-number plates we're all familiar with today. But of course, just like lots of other changes brought by population growth, there was a backlash. Hawkmuth says for some people, holding on to a two-letter county code plate became a badge of Colorado longevity. And that was kind of part of the big, and again with my air quotes, the native Colorado movement. You know, when you everybody had the native stickers. And so by moving to the 3-3 plate, you must be one of those new people moving into our county, not one of the old-time residents. The ones who really cared about this, they got the state to agree to let them keep their county code plates basically forever. The state even replaces them for free when they wear out. There's a, an 1,800-page list of those folks who in 2003 registered 
their plates and the counties send us the information and we double check the list and you know, send them back out. So now we know what happened. Colorado grew and as it did, the license plate system had to change to keep up. And that fun insider code that let people know where the guy parked next to them in the ski lot came from, it fell into history. I'm Megan Verlee, CPR News. Send us your questions about Colorado at our website, cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. When we come back, I'll announce our next book pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. You're with CPR News. I'm Stuart Vanderwilt, president of Colorado Public Radio. I think there is so much stress and anxiety permeating everybody's experience. It's the pandemic, the political climate, our recognition of the deep racial injustice within our country, our communities, our systems and structures, that as we work to address those things, we need to also find opportunities to provide a sense of stability and some things that you can count on. Our day-to-day work providing information that people can count on being grounded in facts is one of the most important things that we do. And the other thing is we recognize it's really important to provide moments of joy, moments of discovery. The impact of that is we hope that people are inspired and engaged. Support CPR in 2023 and beyond at CPR.org. And thank you. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. You will know it is time to turn the page when you hear the chimes ring like this. We read a book together and then meet the author in our series Turn the Page. And the next event is in February. We are ready to announce our pick. It's actually a collection of essays called Western Journeys by Tiao Lim Go of Denver. In this book, I'm trying to capture a number of journeys that includes my own immigration journey to America, but also journeys in traveling around and figuring out the American West, as well as figuring out you know, what it means to be a writer and how I could be a writer. Go is originally from Singapore, and in these carefully crafted essays, she explores the journeys of the Chinese immigrants who helped build the West even as they were discriminated against. Western Journeys is a mix of memoir, history, and nature writing. Pick up your copy, then plug into our free virtual event with the author, Tiao Lim Go, February 23rd. Tickets are at cpr.org slash turn the page. Denver's Platt Forum is a cutting-edge arts, youth development, and artist-in-residence group that's been around since 2002. CPR's Eden Lane takes us along as she meets the first artist in a new program. Platform has introduced a new artist residency made possible in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Community Mentee Residency is an extension of their normal work with resident artists and high school students in the Art Lab program. Platform's curator and engagement director, Sigrid Strand, says the new program was born to provide specific support for artists. They awarded this um, so that we could work with BIPOC and or LGBTQ artists and uplift their careers, give them opportunities to work with mentors in their field who also share their cultural background and their identities. And so we really were looking for a safe space to create work that you know, challenges the norms in um, commercial galleries and gives them that liberation and safe space to create. For this inaugural residency, Platform chose Denver-based painter, illustrator, and muralist John Ray Church. What was it about Platform that made you even apply to be a resident artist there? I really enjoy what they stand for, and I think that um, it's important to support BIPOC and LGBTQ plus individuals in the arts. So that really resonated with me. When you applied, you didn't know that this was going to be the program that you would be chosen for. But after you were chosen for this program, how did that impact what you wanted to accomplish during this residency? Uh, well, after I calmed down a little bit, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that what I wanted to accomplish was telling my story through my art. Because my hope is that in some way the viewers can connect with it because in my own experience, seeing other people's art, whether that's through music, poetry or visual arts, I have found my own healing. And I really believe that the only reason for our existence is connection. 
It's fascinating to hear a visual artist talk about connection because you're in isolation for so much of your creative process. Can mm-hmm. you talk to me about that? I feel for me now um, that I actually feel more connected to my community than I have before. While I am working in isolation, while I paint, I'm still consulting like my mentors and having other people look at it and tell the story behind each piece. And for me, that has ultimate, that has been like extremely healing. Um, so I do actually feel pretty connected to everybody. That's an interesting byproduct of this, mm. this residency. Let's talk about the fun stuff. Let's talk about your show, Indigo. What does that mean? So Indigo is symbolic of um, intuition, obviously, and the ability to plan for the future, but it also is symbolic of connection. And um, not only, I don't want to just talk about connection to other people. I think that there's a level of connection to ourselves that we need to take a hard look at in order Mm. to hopefully reach that process of healing. Although Church is primarily a portrait artist, in this exhibition, she is expanding into more abstract work. She says to expect lots and lots of color, patterns, and shapes. Um, I hope a little bit of healing. And I know a lot of people in the industry, and I, like, I, I would love for them to connect and take something away from my work. And whether they know the exact meaning behind each piece, I really enjoy when other people create their own meaning. I I don't just do this for me. I do think that we find that healing through speaking to other people and other people's stories. Um, So that's what I'm ultimately hoping for from this show. Strand says there are many ways of defining success for this new residency program. A well-attended opening is just the first step. It could also be a launching place for Church's career. She has been working on her career, but also juggling another job for a long time. And I, I really want to see her career blossom after this. And so we've been trying to have her meet with other curators locally. And, you know, just like I said, I want to see tons of support, people showing up um, and seeing all of this beautiful work that she's creating. Indigo with Platform resident artist John Ray Church runs January 13th through January 31st at the group's Denver gallery space. I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today with thanks to our team. Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. And special thanks to Claire Cleveland. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC.